I I grew up in a bookhouse. Okay. And uh, I was like, I don't even know if I have a bookhouse now, really, because of the way we kind of consume media now. Well, Except I'm, that I suppose here we are surrounded by books. Yeah, I was in my office. Say, I'm sitting in this like gorgeous office, and thank there's you. All these lovely books around. So I definitely think you have a bookhouse. Somewhat bookhouse. <laughs> I have a book bedroom certainly as well. Like there's a whole alcove in my bedroom that's just where they all live but having said that I didn't really realize how much I shift books on I and I do I definitely am mm. really sentimental and mm. um, so even some of the books on this list that we're going to talk about I don't have anymore in a funny way which is yeah. weird they've I've obviously just pushed them on others I think that that happens as well like as you get older and if you're moving around and stuff and you kind of you need different books at different points and you decide which ones to discard. So yes, like, yeah. Now I'm looking and especially doing that book challenge on Twitter, the Read Irish, Irish Women. Women yeah, yeah. I like, came across a book the other day that I loved as a kid and I don't have any more, but I want to give it to my kids. So like, it's that weird thing of you'll get them back and or give them away or. Yeah, you know. yeah. And they'll kind of do the rounds, I guess. Yeah. There's, um, there's something so lovely though about giving your books to someone else. I think that's like one of the nicest acts of love. Yeah, defo. I think so. And oh, even people who are resistant, I suppose. <laughs> you, <pass them laughs> like, you have to have this, you have to read it. But also I think most of the time when people come over to my house, like lots of my reader friends would know that like they'll probably leave with something like a book, definitely. Yeah. Like I get sent a lot of books for work, which is so nice. Mm-hmm. And then also, I don't know. Yeah, I just am always kind of like, what, what do I have for you? I probably have something for you right now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I tend to. And I guess that's, I think it's very important because I think you can get clogged down with your books too. And yeah. yeah, so it's interesting. You said there that you're from like a book family. So mm. were books a big part of your childhood? They were. But when um, I was trying to think about like the first book I remember reading, it wasn't massively connected to it, but it was the Just William series. And my mom used to read them to me. And I, it's so funny, like I don't even really remember caring, like at all. <laughs> it's just that it is quite honestly the first mm-hmm. one I remember reading. Um, and, um, and like, I think just William is like this kind of really weird kind of like totally English kind of very proper sort of upper class yeah. English book. Yeah. And, but my mum had just had them from her childhood. Okay. And she was just like, pushing it on yeah, uh, posh clearly family. posh family like she's from Cork so it's really weird that I don't know how like, she ended up with this but and then the other the one I really really strongly remember is the Thomas the Tank Engine books and we had um, Ringo Starr on cassette tape oh doing the narrating and he used to just like always remember turn the page was Ringo Starr like a big part of my reading kind of I my, my burgeoning reading career that was amazing yeah turn the page and it is funny how I suppose so much of the childhood books they don't change a lot and oh. Like now I read books to my kids and, you know, they love Thomas the Tank Engine. But now there's like Thomas 2.0 and like he's in high def cartoons and stuff like that. But obviously they have like loads of Thomas books. I know, he's much edgier and cooler now though. Yeah, he's just like way slicker looking. Um, And we have like I read um, The Tiger Came to Tea (gasps) to them. And that was it was the first one that I picked up buying kids from books for my kids that I was like oh wait though this is very familiar yeah like and um it totally jogged my memory the illustrations are just really they're really iconic I think and uh so it's all about this like really bold tiger who comes to tea and like eats the shit out of the place and like wrecks it wrecks the gaff and it's just uh it's really um it's really cool I love any illustration in a book it's sort of like a lovely surprise um yeah, I like any or any kind of like typographical quirks or anything like that. I always think it really captures my imagination. Like, actually, I'm just looking at Sarah uh, Griffin's oh, yeah. latest book, Other Words for Smoke, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, she has um, footnotes yes. and like anything like that. That's mm-hmm. just like a bit of a deviation from like the form. I just really enjoy. But yeah, with the kids books, I really like the absurdity. And then I also really love the kind of philosophical mm-hmm sort of side um and the other book from childhood that I read to my kids um was one called The Missing Piece I think I know that one and it's just really simple it's by um Saul Silverstein 
I hope I'm getting his name right. Yeah, I think it's all Silverstein. It's like a super Jewish name. Um, and um, it's like everyone eating matzo ball soup. And- I, I know, I know. My husband is Jewish. So like, um, I'm so obsessed with like his, his Jewish culture, but like he's so not. He's such a like, he's very He's the ish, like he's okay. Jewish. Um, but he made his apartment and stuff like that. But like he, I, I was like, I've got this brilliant book. Do you remember it's all Silverstein? He was like rolling his eyes. And um, <laughs> it's basically very simple line drawings. And it's um, a, a, a circle with a segment uh, taken out. Okay. A bit like Pac-Man. Looks oh, like Pac-Man, cool. but very simple. And it's Jewish just, Pac-Man. it's a Jewish Pac-Man from the 70s in New York, I guess. Yes. And um, <laughs> he's like rolling along and he's looking for his missing piece. And he finds pieces that don't fit, pieces that are too small, pieces that are this, that and the other. And um, because he's got his piece missing when he rolls, it kind of interrupts the smoothness of his glide. So he like talks to butterflies and he can kind of take in the world around him and things like that. And um, there's even a little song in it that because it's a book, you know, I I made up the tune to this song. Do you know what I mean? And my kids sing it and it's like, oh, I'm looking for my missing piece. I'm looking for my missing piece. Uh, Hi ho, here I go. I'm looking for my missing piece. And basically, the kind of like lesson in the book is that like you, you know, you don't need your missing piece. Yeah. That actually, like, you'll find pieces and they'll work for time, mm-hmm. and then they won't work. And sometimes the piece will seem perfect. Mm-hmm. And you know, but like you're fine without it too. It's just a nice, and it's very like simple, but it's got yeah. kind of quite a nice sort of like philosophical sort of yeah, like message. That's, that's such a profound thing when you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Saying to children at a young age, you know, all these different kind of pieces you can get. Also, I love the song. Like the oh, song thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah, copyright that. <laughs> I just get in touch with uh, Saul Silverstein and be like, hey, uh, let's do a collab. Oh, still alive. <laughs> I don't know. I should look into that. Look into I think it. he used to write poetry and, and other adult things too. That's so incredible. I should have Googled, in fact, some of that information. We'll, we'll, um, do, it. we'll do a post note on that to be like, in the show notes, be like, FYI, Saul is... <laughs> yeah, not even probably called Saul. <laughs> Shit, all of that's wrong. In fact, that book didn't exist. Sophie was you just having write. an extended <laughs> flashback. Um, yeah, I was listening to. Do you listen to Sentimental Garbage? Yeah, I love it. It's yeah. um, it's a book podcast uh by Caroline O'Donoghue, and um, it's uh, I'm just always so impressed with like the depth of uh, knowledge and research that everyone yeah. has about their chosen book there. So just, I'm now suddenly getting nervous that I haven't actually pre googled anything we're about oh, to talk no, about. Don't but. at all because it's so much better. I think when you you're pulling it from the recesses of your memory and whether it's true and or what not, it that's, felt like. That's yeah. how you remember. So. Um, I, I just did refer to my list about what first books do you remember reading? <laughs> Carrie is on there. No way. Yeah, like so Stephen, Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, so I think I read that when I was about 11. Okay. And um, I do, it was vivid to me. Yeah. Like, I just think that was the first time I really, really plugged into a book's world. Yeah. And I had always loved Goosebumps, Point Horror, mm-hmm. um, totally devoted and hopelessly devoted to goosebumps and um go on give us a bell (laughs) (laughs) i need to actually start limiting my singing because no it's becoming a like it's i'm oppressing people with it like i have them a karaoke app (laughs) on my phone and i've constantly well constantly i share from time to time links of me singing to with my friend leah who like basically is like this feels like a form of abuse stop it no (laughs) i know that. Me singing Jolene, and you can like auto tune your voice so that you sound phenomenal as okay, well. You have to give me the name of that app. Oh I... yes, everyone needs it in their life, especially yeah. freelancers who work yeah. from home and are so alone mm-hmm. for such long stretches. Smool <laughs> um, is the name of the app. Hashtag plug. Um, <laughs> Sponsored gone. <laughs> so yeah, Carrie was one that. Carrie and the Exorcist in my teens. Oh my God. I just remember I used to read under the desk in school. And I always remember having like this persistent paranoia that people could read my mind Mm -hmm. and that people reading my mind would think these were my thoughts and that I was fucked up as fucked up as Stephen King. And uh, is it William P. Blatty? Yes. Yeah, the Exorcist guy. I both very. Yeah, like (laughs) these were just like the inner monologue was just the voice of like Carrie. Or the Exorcist. But that's a really particular thing in your life as well. When you're a teenager, even like I remember a lot like, of stealth reading. Yeah, yeah, under the blanket at night. Yeah. Didn't have phones for light. Mm. Actual torches. Yeah, it's like 
like Goonies kind of territory. I know, you're under yeah. your little fort blanket there and you'll get lost in another world. Oh yeah, and it's getting so clammy under there. And I suck my thumb and that that can get very moist. Yeah. And like, and there's a lot of breathing <laughs> through the nose. <laughs> it's a really, I mean, I highly recommend <laughs> For everyone. Four years at it, I'll never quit. Um, but yeah, so I'm always like, tr- I'm all troubled by like how to prop the book and suck my thumb and twiddle my hair because the hands need to do that. Nice. So yeah, so they're kind of, I think, big books that kind of really captured me when I was yeah. younger. Mm. And um like Carrie I think such an underrated book actually like I have I was never I've not like a massive Stephen King fan Mm -hmm. although like I have this like massive awe Mm. of him yeah um he's just so prolific I'm like yeah fucking time (laughs) I just think as well like just the the worlds he creates are always they feel vast yeah and like and say like The Shining like Mm -hmm. for example which is another one of his that I really really do love um I just think he doesn't scrimp on anything mm. when it comes to his books and his mm. characters. And like, I suppose that's the the trick of it. Like he's just, everything feels so real. Yeah. Carrie felt really real because I don't know if you've ever read it, yeah. but it's very like a kind of um, like a report. Yeah. Which is another, I suppose, fucking with the form, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, so that felt massively real. It was practically a medicalized yeah. overview of yeah. this phenomenon that had happened with this girl. And obviously she was a teenage girl. She was menstruating. I was only dying to menstruate. I know. Can't remember when I was like, where is it? But I, got, I think I got my period like way after I read Carrie. Oh, the same. And I was I like, remember. where's my telekinesis? <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> well, can I swear on your podcast? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I think they're the ones... And I suppose they're all kind of fairly, I mean, I went fast into gruesome, but. Yeah, but like Carrie was brilliant. And I think Mm. like, I don't know if every girl did, but I remember definitely as like a preteen reading it as well. Mm. And like feeling so understood and connecting in a really creepy level of like, as you say, because the form and that's written that like, and obviously there wasn't any Google, like when we were reading it. No. There wasn't like you could just Google, is this real or not? Can Does this happen? Yeah. yeah. And like it completely fucked with you. And like that can be really a powerful tool. And like, have you read uh, Daisy Jones and the Six? Yeah, yeah. I just read it a month ago, actually. And it's similar like that in hair. Yeah, it's like documentary like, or something. Yeah, it's an yeah. oral history. And like yeah. one of the top Google searches with now is like, you know, Daisy Jones and the Six, real band. Yeah, real band. Yeah, who's that, it based on? Or yeah, do they exist exactly? I can just imagine now like teenagers and stuff reading Carrie. I'm like, I wonder what they you know, be Googling it going, is this, <laughs> Carrie, what's her surname? Like, where is she? Well, and it's so great now because of the internet, you can find points to argue both sides of yes. anything. So if you want to believe it, there are people on Reddit, who, on Reddit who are ready for you and who are going to tell you about all their theories and experiences. And also like through, funny enough, uh, researching for um, the Creep Dive plug, mm. plug alert. Um, oh, like anyone who hasn't watched or not watched, anyone who hasn't listened to the Creep Dive, go and listen to it. It's another post podcast that Sophie does and it's like fucking amazing well it really feels to me which is basically why we started it um, I just bullied everyone into doing it but um, I was researching the Enfield uh, hauntings and um, you know there's loads of um, like if you are into the paranormal mm-hmm. and you know and legitimately you know enjoy researching it and stuff there's loads of instances of possession mm-hmm. like right around a woman's first yes. period yeah. and like whether this look whichever side of this mm-hmm. fence you fall on the fact is that this belief has been held on to for centuries yeah. and like a kind of a suspicion of women menstruating has existed since forever yeah. and whatever you know um kind of culture or religion wants mm-hmm. to tack on to that be it like demonic possession or like a sense of uncleanliness yeah. or witchcraft or whatever yeah. like it's been around since dot like isolating women who are menstruating all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff so yeah like I just think that's again a part of his genius and, yeah. and all writers genius really that like you're almost always taking something that's already in the culture in one way or another yeah, and, playing and, with it. and spinning it out as far as it'll go I guess yeah, yeah. so yeah it's a really good way of putting it so you were you came to the horror then early mm. on and oh, yes. that kind of stayed with you then? As- um, definitely like my mother would like hand me books and be like oh this is one for you um 
like there's incest in it or there's mutilations. Flowers in the attic. Oh my God, I know. I like, ew. <laughs> I love though flowers in the attics, like having a second life. I know. And it's gone totally legit. I feel like flowers in the attic was everyone's like full on, like dirty oh, yeah. secret. Um, you couldn't be caught, But now like, you can openly be like, I was a flowers in the attic fan. You could not do that at the time when you're reading it. Like you couldn't be seen with that book out in public. Oh no. Like no. that has to be something you were doing the privacy adults would worry yeah about you like i remember my mother saw me and my sister passing it back and forth and she was just like looking at us suspiciously like what are you doing i better get in with some kind of talk before like (laughs) definitely like and now it's as you say it's getting like that little revival and i even found myself because like i think i read them all but i can only really remember the first one so then like i'm looking i'm you know my e-reader going like oh well i Will I buy and get it? And it's mm. on the wish list there. And like, I was trying to explain to, you know, one of my friends about it who had no idea of flowers in the attic, didn't even know it existed. And they were like, what the fuck is wrong with I you? I know. And when I went back <laughs> recently to read the synopses of like all our other books and stuff, I was like, huh, I just feel like this wouldn't really get past development these days. Like, you know. They, they banned, you know, the country girls. Okay, so then the book I like to come to is the first book that either got you to like heartbreak or a big life moment or I suppose like the first book you read that you you felt you'd meaning with as an adult oh so this actually was the only question that was totally easy oh uh, well yeah pretty much I've said that now and, now and then I looked down I'm like shit I've got a few more written after it <laughs> and it's actually not super like it's not like the story was relevant to anything that was happening to me and um, but it's Possession by A.S. Byatt okay. do you know that book no I do not um A.S. Byatt is Margaret Drabble's sister okay so there's two like giant novelists in one family there and um no and they're both quite different and A.S. Byatt is is um, she just writes again these massive worlds and so possession is um, oh it's set in the world of academia which is a bit of like a kind of pet love of mine like do you know the way everyone loves like different eras yes um, like I think I like you I love the 20s and yes. 30s and um, I love um, also like the world of academia because I think there's just when you have that amount of uh, passion Mm -hmm. like you're going to be strange and fun and you know yes and so the it's set around these uh, two academics who are basically they are just like so far from the beaten track basically Mm -hmm. of kind of like sexy academia Mm -hmm. and they study these um like 19th century uh, English poets um he is specializing in kind of one of them and this other female academic specializes in this other even more obscure one so they're two extremely obscure poets and um it's i mean it sounds like what but they're basically on a kind of slightly kind of uh like it's almost Dan Brownie in right. that they're on a Da Vinci Code style hunt okay. of this extremely obscure pocket of like, you know, um, English literature. And um, there's just actually so much humour in yeah. it. And the characters are just so... Um, they're kind of familiar, but they're also just so formed and so themselves yeah. and like it's it's also like so it's present day set in the 80s okay. in like a really dreary London and like they're all broke because they're academics and like um it's and there's like a little bit of like I do enjoy a bit of kind of theft mm. and a bit of kind of um like hoaxery and things like that and there's a touch of that in the plot and there's just like there's massive egos of the academic world and then what also you have is um kind of cutbacks between so present day which is the 80s in London and um the actual time of the poets that are being studied so we're we're kind of seeing the poets through the um prism of the academics who are studying them and then actually we are following their real life in another a separate timeline and and it's like, again, it's just one of those books, I think, that every now and then, every few pages, you're like, this is all coming from one person. Yeah. And A.S. Byatt has like done, uh, she's basically created like a contemporary sort of 
uh, adventure novel yeah. uh, in academic London. She's created a kind of Victorian romance between two kind of um, kind of frigid yeah. uh, um, poets okay. um, in the 19th century. And she's created those two poets' bodies of work within the book as well. Wow. So uh, it's really fascinating. Like the male poet has this like incredibly distinct kind of... Um, uh, like really male kind of voice and very male concerns and um, he does that kind of like do you know that kind of really dense kind of poetry that's kind of almost like prose and it really like borrows from kind of uh, Homer and yeah. that kind of side of things and then she, the female poet's voice is just like this kind of magical realism it's it completely it's like Oh, it's literally like titanium versus, I don't know, amethyst. Yes. These two different bodies of work. And like, I it's it's just incredible. That sounds like, incredible. Yeah, it's really incredible. And when I read it, I actually, um, I was having a nervous breakdown um, when I was 22. Yeah. And I actually like, no, I'm not even saying that like, <laughs> like, it was literally the nervous breakdown. Yeah, like, wasn't like oh I'm not God, like it was, was a bit of a hard a time. Breakdown. No, yeah. I was fully. I was on antipsychotic medication. Mm. I was on antidepressants for the first time. I was having like auditory disturbances, yeah. so it's like a little bit like kind of hallucinationy type yeah. stuff, kind of perceptual issues, mm. which is so disconcerting when you're already worried that you're losing your mind yeah. and then the actual like look and feel of reality yeah. is starting to kind of morph and get yeah. tangled and oh and it's um it was a real head fuck yeah and um and I was being treated obviously um in John of God's and I um I found ev almost everything quite unbearable mm -hmm. like I couldn't watch television yeah I couldn't really, I mean, I could go outside, yeah. but it every moment felt like I was barely kind of hanging on. It was painful. Yeah. And it was just like drenched in dread and fear. And I, the actual physical um, responses in my body were really all fucked up. Yeah. They were really bad. It had actually come about um, because I loved drugs. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Sadly. And um, RIP drugs. RIP <laughs> drugs. I mean, she's, yeah. Uh, um, but you were just so I'd kind unlucky of, with like what happened to you. Yeah, like I think so to a certain extent, but it definitely was a very valuable lesson. So yeah. like I basically thought I was quite a moderate drug taker. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose my barometer for that might have been a bit skewed because I was in college yeah. and I was in art college. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I smoked a lot of weed mm -hmm. Um uh but, you know, I wasn't too bad. Like, yeah. I just would have kind of done pills when I was going out. out. Yeah. Like, it'd go, like if you're wearing a top, that's yeah. your out-out top. That, you know, ecstasy was kind of my out-out thing. But I still have friends like that, you know? Yeah, and for sure. Like, there's mm. people who can just do that forever, I guess. Yeah. I also loved mushrooms. Mm. And um, I think that's kind of what gave my breakdown when it eventually happened such a hallucinatory... Intensity. Intense kind yeah. of slant to it and um, so yeah it was it was kind of during that time that like I knew I needed to kind of make the moments pass mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what you're all always doing with mental illness yeah. you're like trying to knit together this moment to the next to the next just to hold on um you know like that's such a beautiful way to put it, though, because like... I think that's what it really feels like when you're mm. in it, though, because it's so easy to lose that feeling once mm -hmm. you're out of it again, which is so great. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to main make that my main message is that yeah. like I felt normal again. I feel normal now a lot of the time, which yeah. is really good compared to, say, when I was at my most acute, I felt like that for like six months. Yeah. And I mean, like medication did really help me. Um. In combination with a lot of other yeah. stuff. It's never just like one thing. Like no, when yeah. I was in my early 20s, like I had a really severe sp spell of depression and like there's a lot of history of mental illness in my family anyway. Yeah. And like, like it culminated in me like overdosing basically and then like having to get yeah. myself back on track. I'm very much can like, I get the whole thing of knitting together one moment because you need like something to anchor you. Yeah. And now I do knit. Yeah. Um, you actually knit? Yeah, I'm devoted. I have a blanket in that bag that I'm working on at the moment. 
amazing. But it really, really helps my head. Yeah. Um, mm. It helps me deal with stress and things like that mm-hmm. because I have I have episodes. I've yeah. had episodes since, and I'm since, and I'm st- still on medication now. Mm-hmm. But like, and yeah. So back then I didn't have knitting. I kind of liked swimming. That mm. kind of helped, but reading was what really helped me pass the moments yeah. and kind of get out the other side of yeah. that first really bad period. And uh, possession, I think it was the only book that was like mad enough. And funny enough and sad enough and exciting enough and everything enough. It really is a book that has everything. Like it's got love and loneliness and it's it's so funny, yeah. but it's like a very particular type of humor. But yeah, so that was the book I, I think really was my first like, oh, books can yeah. save you. Okay, I'm literally yeah. going to get this book now after today. <laughs> and like I'll be furiously messaging you being like, Sophie. Oh yeah, well I'll send you this list for the show notes, I guess. <gasps> oh my God, yeah. And you're like, I just got to spend all my money on books. I know, it's very hard not to. <laughs> it really is. The other one I do have down here is a one that I read quite recently that really did impact me as well, which is An Abbreviated Life by Aria Levy. Okay. Um, so it's nonfiction and it's... um. Aria Levy, she's a writer. She grew up in New York with a very famous poet mother. Mm. And um, she wrote this book all about um, growing up kind of the daughter of a narcissist. I think this, I you have might this have, book on the list. Yeah, you might it, have read it. It, it made quite a splash when it came out yeah. because the mother is very famous. Yeah. She's not named in the book, so I won't name her here, but it's really easy to find out who she is. And well, um, and she is a bit of a legend, like yeah. for sure. Like, although in abbreviated, the abbreviated, an abbreviated life, Aria Levy's book, I think it basically just kind of really delved into how, even though her mother was a kind of a, a fantastic personality mm-hmm. and like a pioneer as well, definitely, um, she kind of gaslit her daughter. Yeah. Um, and kind of never gave her space mm-hmm. to have her kind of own emotions, uh, never mind her own life and stuff. Yeah. Um, so it was this kind of like decades long gaslighting. And I think like I do not thankfully have that kind of mother at all. But I think I have a mother uh, that where we both have to be mindful of each other in our relationship because yeah. we are really, really close. Yeah. And she is a powerful person mm-hmm. uh, in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like reading that book. It, like, it did not remind me of my relationship with my mother at all. But I think what it really taught me was that like oh, we're actually not obliged to dismiss the hard things that have happened to us, mm-hmm. which I think is very Irish thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very, certainly my family thing of like, you know, that like any kind of dwelling or any kind of even acknowledging is mm-hmm. tantamount to self-pity. Yeah. And we don't do introspection. No. Like as a nation. And yeah. Then you, you see it all the time with people who like, like I'm, I'm a big thing for being self-aware and like, knowing my emotions things like that and it's probably because of too many years of therapy or whatever but like I advocate to everyone no such thing, <laughs> no such thing. like I advocate to everyone to do it because particularly in Ireland we, it's like navel gazing it's seen as self-indulgent and yeah yeah or is like and you don't understand these things as you grow up as you say like you have permission to get upset yeah or not feel along. affected by something mm-hmm. that might have been hard yeah so that was kind of yeah that was an important one for me that sounds amazing so I love that about like memoirs and nonfiction. They kind of give you permission to be a person or as you say, like feel your feelings. and Totally. Or kind of even like actually get have a bit of respect for your own story. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know. And like I have to say, I really love that about your first book. Oh, thank you. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Sophie is author of a book called Recipes for a Nervous Breakdown. That's like part cookbook, part memoir and like it's so beautiful and fantastic and f- like full of delicious food, but also full of this really powerful writing Thank about you. where you were in your life. And like, I, I will admit, it would like so to see in my head that I'm like, oh my God, like at some point I would love to do that, like do a cookbook memoir, but I won't do it as good as Sophie. But oh, stop. No. If you, <laughs> haven't, if you haven't read it, go and read it because it's literally one of those books, you, like the cookbooks you'll sit in bed reading. Oh, well, that's obviously what I really wanted for it. Yeah. So thank you very much for saying that. And yeah, I definitely thought I didn't know why I gave myself permission to write a memoir when I was 29. (laughs) Except that I definitely was like, well, I mean, this is the grossest thing I've ever done, but whatever. No, you had had, like, it's a... (laughs) 
a testament to your story that it was interesting. I mean, did did anyone turn around and was like, oh, you shouldn't be writing this. You're online. I mean, you had a fantastic story. Like you can tell that at any point. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. Like I think it's I got it, though. Mm. I think I got the confidence from reading other mm. other, you know, collections and things like that and was like, oh, look. And, you know, it came about because I have a column and um, I've been writing in the Sunday Indo for the mm-hmm. last seven years and um, which is a cookery column, but it has kind of like a lengthy anecdote. Um, that kind of accompanies the recipe every week. And so when um, Gail, my publisher, um, contacted me and mm. asked me if I'd be interested in doing a cookbook, I kind of knew that I wouldn't yeah. unless I could maybe tell this story, mm. um, you know, about drugs and mental yeah. illness and life and shit like that. And um, so I just felt like really lucky that they gave it a chance. Yeah. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence. Mm. But now I'm like, oh, it doesn't, you know, I don't think you need some massive kind of like hooky hook mm-hmm. to to bring out a, like a brilliant perspective, like because mm-hmm. yours is uniquely yours. Yeah. So, I, and I kind of want to hear what everyone has to say. Do you know that kind of yeah, way? Definitely. So, and yeah. There, there can be this whole snobbery around who gets to tell their story and when they get to tell it and things like that. And, and especially go, with women. Especially with Like women. I genuinely, we've been listening to a lot of men telling stories yeah. that are way less interesting. Oh, <laughs> like, and like when they are like revelatory in any way, it's very brave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like we're, they're literally blessing us with their experiences. But when women are revelatory in any way, the narrative is very like, oh, it's very TMI, yeah. a la Lena Dunham, like whatever your feelings mm-hmm. are about her, like all anyone feels is kind of like she's been pushing herself on us and it's like well she's actually just doing what a lot of men have been doing for a long time like you know and just basically feeling entitled and kind of owning it and like look she's she's she is who she is and you might hate her or love her or whatever but I do think it was kind of a brave and bold move because millennials as well like Mm -hmm. they were already the kind of butt of the joke and the scourge and stuff like that so for her to just kind of like be like yeah I got a fucking million dollar advance and now you're gonna hear my stories do you know and like yeah even though I mean you know it's not necessarily that I loved her book so much or anything but I definitely remember reading it and being like huh so she's allowed to tell this story yes it was kind of interesting yeah. and like maybe I was massively sheltered that it took me until that to to realize that but no I actually no actually no I don't think I was I think it's that like very thin beautiful women were allowed to do it for mm-hmm. a bit longer before that you mm-hmm. know what I mean like they were worth listening to yeah um before that like any so, man yeah. could and tell men. his story <laughs> totally but women who only fit into a certain stereotype or mold or or expectation of what we had for interesting women who would tell their stories could yeah. tell their stories yeah it was like well lena dunham as you say like you have your feelings better but you contrast her to the guy who wrote a million little pieces what was his name james frey, uh, frey. Yeah, yeah james frey james frey who literally lies who literally like <laughs> makes up a fucking everything and we forgive him and he goes on to write more books oh many more (laughs) and like never a even like shadow of kind of miracle but yeah this is if anyone doesn't remember (laughs) his million little pieces came out in the early noughties and was billed as a memoir and it detailed james's like incredible uh, first harrowing descent into addiction and then kind of re- and redemption and totally harrowing word, like oh yeah like and it, then it was enormous um it was kind of actually only a medium success really and then oprah's yeah. book, book oprah oprah's book club mm. picked it up and exploded like and the like oprah seal of approval there yeah and then he got the oprah dressing down after it came out that he'd been bold <laughs> i listened to him on elizabeth day's podcast <gasps> how to fair. fail and it was a lesson Mm. in I don't know maybe just dispensing all humility and yeah. fucking just being James Frey about it talk about he had like James Frey energy mm. it's quite a specific <laughs> it's, it's another I don't know level. If many women really aspire to it I don't think so <laughs> no. but yeah it's another level Jesus <laughs> but it, it it really is like I always think of that whenever like because I've you know you start writing essays or start writing anything that's ever personal mm. and I think it's a specifically female thing that you're like oh should I be saying this is this all self oh yeah you're like well would a man be asking this no so then like that's your I mean try yeah I guess to kind of <laughs> yeah 
I definitely don't want to be like a man though. Okay. No, like, I, I just want the confidence. Oh, the me. confidence. <laughs> okay, so. A book that taught you about friendship. Yes. Mm. So this is actually a whole series of books. Yes. It's not Harry Potter. <laughs> um, although it definitely like has loads of parallels. Loads. In fact, I want somebody to do their PhD thesis on this. Um, it's Tales of the City by Armistead Mopen. Oh, do you know the books? I'm familiar. Yes. So it's a six book series. I think like some will argue that the first three are better um, than the latter three. I disagree. Um, <laughs> so they, the books came about because Armistead Mopen, um, he's a San Francisco based writer and he had a column well, a serial kind of uh, column in the Chronicle in San Francisco, the newspaper. And that's where Tales of the City was kind of born mm-hmm. first in the newspaper as a weekly column, kind of uh, charting the lives of all the characters who um, are living in San Francisco in the 70s. And we have Marianne, who's like the ingenue, who's mm-hmm. moved from Cleveland and like doesn't know what to make of like, it's obviously the 70s and like gay rights are just like exploding and like the scene is incredible, full of like acceptance and um, bathhouses and um, <laughs> that is like a uniquely American thing isn't it the bathhouse yeah, yeah I know um, which and it isn't even American at all but like I was watching Billions the other night and like there's this scene in it with two of the characters and like they're in a bathhouse and like that would just not happen in a story <laughs> yes, <in our> <laughs> totally like hmm, where we have this scene take place like, like the pub yeah <laughs> literally yeah in a rainy caravan like I think that's the most quintessential Irish scene like just in a oh mobile home in Wexford in the pissing rain like we're <laughs> like a glowing statue of Mary from Lourdes that your auntie had oh or you. maybe like a child of Prague somewhere <laughs> like just in the corner um so yeah it's the tales of the city uh I think like so I mean I read it when I was a teenager I started reading them when I was about 13 or 14 mm-hmm. and like they'd cut past from my mom loved them she gave them to my cousin who's a few years older than me who gave them yeah. to me and uh like taught me a lot about like well first off the kind of like gay bathhouse scene in the 70s mm-hmm. in San Francisco um but then I think what it really taught me about friendship was that like you know really your friends don't have to be like you. In fact, it's really great if they're not. Mm. And I think it taught me a lot about what your friendship group will eventually look like and how friendships kind of wax and wane and they grow and you lose some and you gain. And that's, I think, what is kind of at the core of Tales of the City, even though it kind of like follows. So as I said, there's Marianne, the ingenue, and she mm-hmm. moves into this house in San Francisco in the first book. And like, she's just kind of so wet behind the ears, so green. Like yeah. she was basically like completely me. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like as I was reading it, like mm-hmm. as a 13, 14 year old girl. Yeah. And then she makes friends with this guy called Michael Taufer, who is like, I think still one of the most like beloved creations in literature for a lot of people. So his name was Michael Mouse, like his nickname was Mouse. And he was... um he'd been living in San Francisco and he's gay and they live in this house share. Their landlady is Mrs. Madrigal, who was played by Olympia Dukakis mm-hmm. in um, the TV series version that they made in the kind of 90s that like I actually really liked. But and it had a great cast. Laura Linney was Mar- oh, Marianne. What? I yeah. Mean, like fucking hell Laurelyn I know totally like and she's been doing cool things for so long before anyone noticed well now we notice but um yeah and uh they like and so Mrs. Madrigal's in her 60s and like she's real kind of cool kind of grows weed in the garden and like they just are basically like they're basically just like in their 20s in San Francisco but like yeah like that's it it was just like oh my god all these cool people and I think that's the thing that Armistead Mopin did really well as well Mm. was that he didn't just focus is on his scene um, you know being the gay scene but like you're seeing like the emergence of punk in San Francisco in the late 70s um, through the books like he is great for bringing in elements of like the, you know what's actually happening historically at the time so in yeah. the third book there's like references to Jonestown some of the characters wow. get drawn into the Jonestown cult they leave before the old lemonade was Porridge. So yeah. So and he just like basically, I think it's a quite a boundless book. It's a boundless series of books. Like nothing's off limits. Oh Pain, fun, love, 
grief. Do you know what I mean? It's a very all-encompassing. In the latter books, you know, we move through the AIDS epidemic very much on the ground of it. And, you know, like Mouse's, I mean, spoilers, Mouse's partner dies and we in, you know, we spend like the fourth book with him in the aftermath of that. And like, I suppose you just love these characters so much um, that there's like a lot in that I suppose that you live through so much with them that and like an I guess they were my friends <laughs> I thought they were my friends but also um, and that's the other thing Miss um, Madrigal is a trans woman and I felt like you know that was had a lot of meaning as well yeah. I think to like learn that like you know that all your friends it's so funny because then saying friends like we yeah. then went full circle and didn't have a single kind of bit of I suppose diversity or difference in yeah. that group but like I liked it I just thought that like with friends you need other people mm-hmm. to give you their perspectives and like make your life richer and yeah. do you know what I mean and so that's kind of that was one that I thought was really about friendship in a massive way and taught me a lot about friendship. It's amazing and to be really... And about really, how your friends like will be your chosen family. Yeah. And things like that. They really are though and to be reading that at like that age as well. It's such a... Yeah. A it was an special, eye opener. Yeah. <laughs> it was good. I had though. to find out what poppers were. <laughs> we all had to find yeah. out what poppers are at some point. Yeah. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know what poppers are. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually actually lost my train of thought there because I was like just laughing at Popper. <laughs> that is that's a series that I reread endlessly as well, yeah. which kind of leads us on to the books that you read over and over. Yes. Um. So I loved this question. Good. Um, I loved it because I wasn't until recently I wasn't that much of a rereader. Mm-hmm. Um, like I genuinely had kind of concerns about time. Yeah. And not having enough time to read all the things. Yeah. So I didn't generally, yeah. apart from Harry Potter, like in bed on a rainy afternoon with a sandwich. Yeah. I'd Comfort. do a bit of that when I was younger. Um, and I suppose like I've kind of replaced that as somewhat. I haven't read Harry Potter in a good few years mm-hmm. now. But yeah, never say never. No, you don't know. Um, but I actually, um, the year after my dad died, mm-hmm. I kind of, for that whole year, I read nothing that I hadn't read before. I yes. only reread things. And I actually basically kind of very actively kind of took up this mission of mm. I'm going to return to that and I'm returning to that and I'm returning to mm. that. And I think it was actually because I needed the escapism, but I couldn't handle any uncertainty. Yes. I think that's what it was all about. Yeah. I actually wrote an article about it for Image um, kind of during that time, basically saying like I discovered the art of comfort reading. Yeah. And um, so... What I read that year was The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. Yes. Which I really, I think on the face of it, it's like his most boring book in a weird way. But I think it's just magnificent. Yeah. Um, like, I love all his books. But, and I suppose like Virgin Suicides is the most famous because yeah. of the movie. And then um, Middlesex won the Pulitzer mm-hmm. um, and is fantastic. I, I another book of just incredible scope um but the marriage plot it's just it's just like it's such a nifty idea that just works i think so in the marriage plot he's looking at kind of post-grad students who are um and i suppose again it's that slight world of academia that kind of appeals to me that kind of like nerdiness kind of glorious nerdiness and um so basically it just kind of follows it's it's just a marriage plot like it's a triangle it's a love triangle and you know the kind of heroine the sort of like Elizabeth Bennet of the scenario is um studying the marriage plot um in her kind of like post-grad lit sort of um yeah or thesis that she wants to write or whatever and she's also caught up in a marriage plot and I think all of that stuff just really appealed to me and the voice in the book I just loved it. Yeah. Um, I just find it incredibly kind of engrossing and satisfying. Again, it's just like slightly short of being cont- contemporary. I think yeah. it's set in the, the 90s, the mm-hmm. early 90s, maybe late 80s. And I think that's kind of a sort of scene that's got a bit of nostalgia, maybe. Yeah. And also... One of the other characters has bipolar disorder. It's called manic depression, as it was at the time. And it's a very, I think, very good rendering Mm -hmm. of mental illness. Um, 
like I think one of the best I've read. Wow. Um, so so that. that's one of my comfort reads. Yes. And then the other one that I really can't not mention is What I Loved by Siri Hustved. Okay. Have you ever read any of hers? Mm. She is, if anyone knows, Paul Astor, um, who's one of the kind of great American novelists. Yeah. She's his wife. <laughs> I hate introducing her like that. I it's know. obviously not what I believe about her. <sighs> she is a friggin' oh, phenomenal writer. I love her. She's one of the ones now that like I just, you know, set my mind to reading everything she yeah. writes. And so what I loved um, is, I suppose, what is, what is it? It's kind of a family drama meets bit of a kind of dark, slightly murdery plot. Love it. Yeah. And it's what I really love as well is like it's got real life events um, kind of interwoven. Also, a little touch of fictionalized memoir, Ooh. which is very delicious I find yeah. it's tasty it's like tantalizing oh, yeah. like you sink your teeth into that totally like and then you go on a deep dive to be like how much of this is real yes. so uh, what it is is it's set again early mm. 90s like real fave in New York art scene another scene that I love in books um, and um, the main character is um, an artist no he reps artists mm. and he is an, uh, a kind of a, crit a critic and a kind of a historian. He writes books as well. Yeah. And uh, it's about these two families coming together and becoming great friends. And they've basically, they've lived through the kind of absolute golden era of mm. art in the 80s in New yeah. York. So they live in incredible lofts yeah. down in Soho. Um, they have these 54. amazing lives. Oh, it's so good. And basically their lives become very entwined, these two families. They have two sons. The sons grow up together things start to take a bit of a darker turn and um, one of the sons something happens <laughs> something happens to the other son too he gets away. embroiled in the New York club kids scene okay. which is so brilliantly kind of it's fish out of water stuff for yeah. the actual feel of especially the first half of the book because you're in this kind of beautiful art world mm -hmm. and then suddenly you're in um, so the club kids in New York in the early 90s were um what they sound like basically they just used to dress up in these incredible costumes to yeah. go clubbing and it was all about peacocking and drugs and music and dancing and like rebelling and they used to set up ad hoc parties in subways and in mcdonald's yeah. and and they had a leader i think you'll know who it is yeah do you go know on. michael alec oh. who became very famous because he uh, murdered somebody yeah. and the murder was it had everything the tabloids would need like the actual do you know when the pictures yeah. are gonna be so good like yeah. Michael Alec was under suspicion and um, this is in real life and, and um, he they had like a wealth of pictures of him like dressed up for gory yeah. parties where he's covered in blood and yeah. like if you look into the real story um, my favourite murder actually did the story uh, quite recently and I was like oh this is one of my absolute Amazing. favorite murders. Yeah, but um, yeah, and the and the boy he killed, like, so fucking sad. Like, yeah. um, was oh, he was known as Angel, and he always dressed as an angel for yeah. the parties, like with these huge, incredibly beautiful angel wings with covered in feathers and stuff like that. And so that becomes interwoven into this book. I know this sounds like a bloody odyssey, but no. it's so it's such a banger of a book yeah. as well. It's not like heavy going, but it's really well written. Yeah. And the reason it all becomes embroiled in the book is because in real life, Paul Astor's son was friends with Michael Alec. Oh my God. And I mean, oh, I have deep dived the fuck out of this. And I've read so much stuff on Reddit that like that, Apparently he was actually a witness, say, say some sources. No. Yeah. And like Paul Astor is an absolute giant of American yeah. literature. And Siri Husfeld too. They are yeah. like a complete like, I don't know, like they're the Kennedys perhaps yeah. of American literature. Well, yeah. no, they're quite like anti-establishment, but you know. Yeah, I um, the anti-Kennedys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, so all of that just like, all of that kind of conspires to make. I mean, it's, it's just actually a fantastic read without all of that, but I love it. It sounds like such a, a rich story. It's a very rich story and it's like it's pacey as fuck and it's also like addictive yeah yeah it's like it's blending all those different genres mm. together so mm. it's like kind of whatever you're into there's something here for you oh totally absolutely so that. that's one that i go back to again and again for a real treat that's 
completely yeah. understandable because mm. like, those stories that are layered like that you will and you nearly almost find something new each time when you go in or you appreciate a different angle of it oh absolutely yeah like for like the last reading I did of it like my last reading sound like such a knob um, in my last reading I really noticed that mm. um, it's very good on kind of obsession and sort of like the kind of hold that uh, an obsession can actually yeah. take over you. And it's, yeah, it's very kind of like psychological fuckery as well, which yeah. I also enjoy a yeah. lot. I like, I say, that. with Enduring Love mm. by Ian McEwan. Mm. I always find that book so good for that too, where like it really puts you there in that place of being yeah. kind of in a prison of your mind yeah, because of becoming obsessed by something. Mm. And like... Enduring Love, if anyone doesn't know that one, it's kind of two strangers become linked Mm. by a very random and brilliantly depicted tragedy. And one becomes obsessed with the other and begins to stalk him. But like through the book, like the relationship shifts around so much that like the person being stalked becomes as obsessed nearly as the stalker. Uh, You know what I mean? Like it's really, really well done, really clever. So yeah, so they're kind of my rereads, but like... Yeah. Your comfort blanket reads. The comfort blanket reads, yeah. yeah. So murder and marriage. (laughs) They're like the two. Basically the kind of, yeah, the pillars of literature. (laughs) Like say with um, Last One's Left Alive uh, by Sarah Goff Davis that Mm -hmm. I just read really recently and was like the last, I mean that and other words for smoke were probably the last books I read that were really scary. And um, I felt with sort of like the zombie scenes in Last One's Left Alive, I felt like uh, she was really tapping into like such primal stuff that we're afraid of. Yeah. Like that they were, I find them quite gruesome, but like so vivid. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, sure I read it in like one very intense sitting, practically in the middle of the night. I started oh, wow. at 10 p.m. and I finished it in the middle of the night and I was like heart pounding under the sheets. Yeah. Do you know? Shitting yourself. Oh yes, yeah. completely. <laughs> um, and it was all like very, it was very visceral those scenes, mm. the scary scenes where like the smell was really important. The feel like of the zombie creatures, like yeah. that was all that really got to me. Mm. And the way they moved, I think that's always, that's such a thing that like, we've um we register the movement of creatures mm-hmm. kind of almost before the facts of them yeah. so i don't know if you've ever seen a snake for example like the way snakes move yeah. like it just it's like it's just anti everything that yeah. we kind of like and know and trust about yeah. the natural world mm-hmm. so like our bodies are terrified before our minds even can catch up yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of how Last One's Left Alive made me feel as well. Wow. That's amazing. Because like that's on my to be read list. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's in the pile. So I mean, really you literally excited. don't even have to put aside that much time because you will roar you through it. it. Yeah. I find it. I loved it. Yeah. That's incredible. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. So are there any books then on your TBR pile? Um, we are quite literally surrounded by them. Um <laughs> The uh, one that I have here, what do I have down here? I have the to-do list and other debacles, um, which is coming out this summer. And it's by my internet friend, Amy Jones, who is, um, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of internet friends that I've never met, but she's one. And like, sometimes they give a little bit of time to thinking about what if Amy Jones is catfishing me? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Except that there's so many, she used to write for the pool. So unless like she's constructed an entire, yeah, like I'm quite, I'm quite impressed if she is a catfish. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit, a little bit. Hi, Amy. I'll tag her when this goes out so she can tune in. Um, But her, it's her first um, book, and it's a fictionalized memoir, and it's called the To Do List and Other Debacles, and it's also about going mad and kind of. uh, I just. I got a little sneak preview of some chapters and I absolutely loved them and I love Amy's writing and I just am really looking forward to reading it. Yeah. amazing. Mm, So I'm really looking forward to that. That's out in the summer. Incredible. And I'm really looking forward to your book. Are we allowed to talk about it? Stop. 
Yeah, we are. Okay, brilliant. Because I absolutely am fucking obsessed with Zelda and F. Scott. I I literally, from here, I can see Villa America down there. Which is also an unreal book. Like, everyone Mm. should also go and read that because it's so good. Yeah, and I think, like, definitely Tender is the Night is over there as well. Yes. Yes, it's on the top right. And and (laughs) Tender, like, in... God, I'm going to have to do the thing now. So um, I wrote a book and my first book is coming out this summer. It's called Love Zelda. And it was funny, you mentioned earlier on how you hate having to explain about that woman's like, oh, she's the wife of. Oh, yeah. But with this book, I like find I have to because when I don't do it, people are, some people are like a bit like, what? Because either you're really into this or you're not. But mm. Love Zelda is about um Zelda Fitzgerald, who was the wife and muse of F. Scott Fitzgerald, writer of The Great Gatsby, Tender is the Night, This Side of Paradise, etc, etc. But... Zelda was really like the unseen muse of Scott's work. All his best yeah. work was actually her work. And I always thought of her as being the force like yeah, behind she, him. She yeah. really was. So like I got obsessed. I So I get obsessed with things. Like that's kind of what I do. And I get fixated on stuff for a yeah. while. Welcome, welcome. welcome. <laughs> so Zelda was uh, an obsession that came about from reading a biography about F. Scott Fitzgerald when I was like 1920. Mm. And I was like, she sounds way more interesting than he did. <laughs> Hel- held me, right? yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to find out about her. And then there's like, weren't at the time a huge amount of biographies or anything like that. And I started looking into it. So uh, yeah, like Zelda was kind of a force to be reckoned with within mm. her own right. She really pushed against societal expectations at the time mm. of what it was to be a mother and to be a wife and mm. wanting to have this identity and forge for herself outside that. But you mentioned Tender is the Night there and like in the latter half of the book. So Zelda had what we would now know as bipolar. But at mm. the time, everyone just, you know, labeled her as crazy, insane. Suffered with her nerves, yeah. hysterical. Mm-hmm. She kind of was the OG original uh, crazy ex-girlfriend. She was. She was the total <laughs> OG of that. But Tender is the Night was... Scott leaned heavily on literally her letters from mental institutions Mm. to him and her whole experience and he monopolized that experience and then regurgitated and reused it for a book Mm. and that the the development of that book is so tightly woven with Zelda's own descent and into mental Mm. illness and her decline yeah Um, like it's incredible I can't ever now when I read it now after like learning all the things I'm just like Oh, you bastard. Yeah, like, it just feels like an ick fest. It really does. Like he just appropriated completely her illness. 100% and... like their lives. And she mm. really struggled with actually, at the, like in the kind of later end of her life, knowing what was real and knowing what wasn't. Yeah. Because she couldn't tell the facts from fiction anymore with Scott's work because he'd taken so much of their lives and turned it into their books. It's or his kind books. of weird and vampire-like, isn't yeah, it? it? Yeah, it really, really is. But at the same time, they couldn't exist without each other. Mm. It was so Like, it was the fucking worst, most codependent relationship ever. So... <gasps> I don't know if Coda was around back then. Oh, no, they definitely were not calling the Coda. They were just like, you know, these dramatic fights and massive makeups and everything. And yeah. So yeah, so that's... I'm dying to read that. I can't think of anything else that I'm really dying to read, except that actually we have Nigel Slater's new book here beside us. And Let's we were both... Nigel. Yeah, we were both like absolutely like <laughs> kind of like, I mean, standing it basically. Yeah. Um, so... This is Green Feast. So he has a kind of a companion book coming later in the year that will um, deal with autumn, winter. Yeah. And I, I don't know, be like brown feast? <laughs> like what's Meat the, feast? Autumnal feast. <laughs> um, and I love his writing. He's ugh, like, I loved his memoir, Toast, actually, if you ever read yes. it. It's brilliant. So good. Yeah. And I think actually he gave me a lot of heart because I was like, I felt I got into writing through food writing mm. and I was like, I knew I always wanted to do more types of writing too and didn't know if I really could or yeah. was allowed or could. Yeah. Yeah. You had permission. And so he gave me a bit of heart because I was like, Nigel just does his buzz. Like yeah. don't even, he's not stressing. No. And um, so this book is really gorgeous and it's just the way he eats. I think like with all his books, it's like, you know, I will never simple plates and yeah. just very good tastes. And oh, he's the kind of food writer, I think, that like with food writers, you're kind of almost trying to always 
um, like aspire to their whole yeah. life, not just their yeah. their kitchen ways. Do you know that mm-hmm. kind of way? Like, and I certainly don't know if anyone aspires to my life. Like, at I all. aspire. I to I would not recommend. In fact, do not turn back. Um, <laughs> but you know, I suppose like people often ask me actually, like, do I really eat the food? Which is such an interesting question. I think like because really? I think I suppose it just betrays very much how far from comfortable we've yeah. gone with food. So like what did they think you just like make up these recipes and stuff and like don't eat them? And- yeah, yeah, or like because I suppose like I'd make a lot of yeah. like I love really out there desserts yeah. like deep fried Mars bars. Yeah. I practically became kind of known for them at oh some God. point. You, and like, you do them yourself because like I remember yeah. I used to always have to go into Temple Bar to get mine. No, no, I do them like really, they're really easy oh and they're do, delicious. We used to get them and dip them into curry sauce. Oh my like god! A curry sauce from the chipper. I can actually see that. Right? I can see it. Yeah, sounds so wrong. Sounds very wrong. So right. <laughs> like, like flowers in the attic levels of wrong or right. <laughs> oh, so I'm not so advocating incest. <laughs> not incest, but definitely deep fry stuff and oh dip god, it in curry yeah. sauce. Oh yes. So Nigel Slater, anyways, we're going to finish Green off. Feast, Green Feast, yeah. And it's it's such a physically beautiful book. It's the first time I've seen it today, and it's actually so. Gorgeous. Isn't it gorgeous? Um, it's got this kind of like fabric soft back mm. cover with kind of like a gilt almost. Looks yeah. like a bit of gilt sort of embossing on the yeah. front. And um it's just one of those ones I think that is another cookbook mm. that I like I read cookbooks in bed as yeah. well. And like I have to though. It's like reading a story yeah. and stuff. And like well, as I was saying, like I went inspiring to his life. Like I think that's I picture Nigel Slater like just kind of like pottering in his garden, yes. dusting some dirt off the carrots and then coming in and just <laughs> squeezing a lemon juice in a bowl and I'm just like oh Nige your life's painfully beautiful it's, I'm sure he'll be good though, if uh, you know when he has people over because like, mm. his kitchen's quite open plan does he like present the way he would on his cooking shows or is it like <laughs> like do you just automatically go into that default of like like if you ever have a cooking show are you going to be like then when you have you're cooking for seven the kids or whatever that you're just like and oh, no I'm preparing this and over to this and over to this I actually did a mini cooking series for RTU Player once and I don't think that I did very much and now this and yeah. now this the I just ch- chatted briefly at the top of each recipe and then made it and then ate it like that was all I that was my <laughs> format that I'd come up with was like Life. I'll talk cook then eat it's the best um, so yeah I never did the Dorina thing oh you can't I know oh, can I loved that, it though. I know well Sophie White thank you very much thank you very much the books that made me genuinely podcast. this is a pleasure hey. I think I may have been possibly too enthusiastic no never <laughs>